The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio is Erica Edelberg. Does not phone it in, does not mail it in. She shows up. Uh, in the studio, and we appreciate that. She's a mortgage-backed security strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, has been on the street for a number of years. We appreciate getting her time. I don't know, Erica, we got a mortgage rate north of 7%. What's going on in the MBS market these days? Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me on. We uh, actually are seeing a huge decline in mortgage demand, which is just you know symbolic of the fact that the housing market's really freezing up. New homes are still doing okay. There's there's a way to uh, for for home builders to offer lower rates, and <laughs> frankly, there's more inventory right now. I mean, it's about a third of the existing inventory because you can buy, build a new home. You can't get somebody to necessarily sell their home if they're sitting on a three percent mortgage, and they'd have to take out a new eight percent one, like like Matt. Yeah, <laughs> not selling. Um, not selling. Yeah, so the housing market's pretty frozen, and on a seasonally adjusted basis, the mortgage-backed security uh, loan application index that the Mortgage Banker Association puts out just hit the lowest level since 1995 or 1996. Mm. Um, so I think. So wait, you know, does this mean for uh, the mortgage-backed bond market that those are scarce and thus rising in price? Yeah, it's an interesting, uh, a number of interesting dynamics. I actually just sent out a little commentary today. It does mean that new issue supply is going to be very low, which is, should be a positive for the mortgage-backed securities market. But even so, even though um, you know a lot of these homeowners are well out of the money and they're not going to refinance, uh, you know, anytime soon, mortgage-backed securities are still sensitive to volatility and they're still sensitive to what the Fed's going to do. So as a result, you know, we, we kind of thought this would be a pretty good year for mortgage-backed security, not a lot of supply. We thought maybe the Treasury market would rally, you know, once the Fed was done tightening. But that hasn't happened. Do, how many does the Fed own? Do they have a stack of mortgage-backed bonds the in their Fed, vault? The Fed owns about $2.6 mortgage-backed securities. For the past two years during the pandemic, I should say, in 2020, 21, they were waving them in hand over fist to help support the mortgage market and help support bonds overall. And they've stopped doing that because they want rates to rise now. They want to slow down the economy. Um, and that's been a negative drag on the mortgage-backed securities market as well, just not having that them in there as a buyer. But they're not going to sell them, right? In quantitative tightening, they let uh, the bonds they hold run off. Run off, and they don't. But they're not going to sell mortgage-backed securities. I mean, never say never. No guarantees, right. but they've said if that's happening, it's a long ways in the future, and they'll let the market have plenty of uh, advance warning. So you know, they're they're not making any noises towards it. About a year ago, some of the Fed governors were at least maybe they were trying to jawbone mortgage rates higher. Who knows? Uh, so they were saying, oh, we really don't want to own this many mortgage-backed securities. 
but you know there's also uh, not been any move in that direction so I don't think that's that's certainly not the base case of anybody's expectations. By the way what's your take on the long and variable lags because I've heard uh, an interesting debate some people say because there are no more adjustable rate mortgages except for Paul's um, and everybody has a locked in a 30-year rate they're gonna be even longer uh, variable lags you know, but others like Jan Hatzias came out yesterday and said um, he thinks it's shorter, uh, you know, because the Fed telegraphs everything they're going to do so far in advance. And what, what do you what do you think? Um, I, I think, you know, I, I can't really compare it to history. I think that, you know, if you look at um, traditionally movements in mortgage rates slash, you know, housing market prices um, and rents, there's a pretty long and variable lag. But one of the things, you know, aside from, um, you know, perhaps the telegraphing, home prices are actually holding up very well. And I think that's a very key source both of rental incomes as well as, um, you know, people's wealth effect. So I think to the extent that home prices are kind of failing to fall at this point, I think that does actually make the lags relatively long. Yeah. So what's the mortgage-backed security market telling you about interest rates? I mean. People are talking about a Fed maybe in 2024 cutting rates, but you don't see that in the mortgage rate at all. 7.59% on the bankrate.com U.S. home mortgage 30-year fixed, 7.59%. I mean, that's obviously a very current rate, right? Yep. It's, it's, it's not a forecasted rate. It's not really a forward rate, but it is based on, to some degree, the 10-year Treasury, um, you know, plus some spread. And what that's telling you is that we've had, you know, that the curve is uninverted a little bit because... Uh, the markets are telling you that Fed, that, that yields are going to have to stay higher for longer while the Fed continues to That's try no to get fun. inflation under control and you know slow down the economy a little bit. Can I get any return in your market? I mean, I'm looking at the uh, is it kind of flat year to date in terms of the mortgage security return? Yeah, it's flat so far, yep. which might mean there's <laughs> upside going forward. Uh, you know, spreads are very wide. Uh, you know, they're they're kind of you know near ten year wides. They're actually not as wide if you look kind of before the fed started buying in 2008 you know in the post-financial crisis world they're very wide um and you know the fed's probably not going to come in and save the mortgage market anytime soon um as you said they're <laughs> more inclined to sell though i don't think they will uh so as a result um yeah there, there's there's a better buffer you have a lot more yield you have a lot more spread but you have to have a little bit stronger stomach too because you you know maybe the fed will continue pushing rates higher or at least job owning them higher so right. that's what cuts into mortgage-backed security returns so again today we had the mba mortgage applications decline of 2.9 percent versus a prior period of a, a positive 2.3 percent how unusual is that kind of swing period to period i think the best thing to think about when you're looking at something like the mba purchase index being right now at you know the lowest rate since 1995 the, these are percentage changes off extremely low numbers okay so yep. you know if one more person takes out a mortgage That's purchase right. it's okay. going to influence the uh the the number so yeah i i think you know the, the direction has to be looked at over a longer period of time and we're down 30 percent relative to a year ago and even a year ago rates had already started rising is so. there a rate where I don't know, the market opens up, people start buying and selling houses again. I mean, at one point I heard somebody say like, you know, eh, five, five and a half percent for the mortgage rates get back down to there. But boy, we're a long way from that. Yeah, we are. We're, we're currently, as you said, at 7.5% on the bank rate. Um, you know, I, it's, it's hard to put a number on something like that. I think part of it will be time as well, because just over time, people have to upsize their homes. 
you know, death, divorce, taxes, defaults. We're certainly not facing defaults anytime soon right. with with unemployment. At, you know, pretty much all time lows. But um, you know, that being said, uh, time will help. More mortgages are getting originated, albeit slowly, at these higher rates. Um, and those people, of course, aren't quite as locked in. But I think the mortgage market structure is going to stay, you know, in the very low coupon range for a very long time. So I don't think we'll have the kind of turnover we're used to seeing in the housing market for a decade. You know what's a great thing? Downsizing. Yeah. Nice. That no tax. And my cash burn is a fraction of what it was back in the day. I'm excited for that to happen to me thing. in 20, <laughs> yeah. 20 yeah. years or so. And when you downsize, you can sometimes take out the entire equity of your home and not have to take out a mortgage at all. Yep. So those types of things will keep the housing market. And, and there is a whole bunch of people that are, you know, in the next generation that are kind of ready to downsize, you know. Um, so, so those homes also And then you might got people like John Tucker who actually does the repairs to his own home. Right. So, right. Well, he's never downsized. He still lives in the mansion still overlooking the sea. Okay. okay. But there is a, uh, there's a guest cottage on the, on the estate. So nice. at some point, that's, See, that's an option. that's what you need to do. Yeah. I thought he was going to say, house. I could move in. <laughs> yeah, you can move in. <laughs> or at least stay there for the weekend. Yeah, you know? exactly. Down to shore. Bite All your right. tongue. All right, Erica, thank you so much for joining us. Erica Edelberg, she's a mortgage-backed security strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. At some point, we got to talk about porting mortgages. Porting mortgages? You know, because I locked in a 3% rate. And nice. um, if I want it, I love my house. I'm not going to sell it. My wife's listening. Don't freak out. But <laughs> if I did want to, uh, I'd like to take my 3% mortgage with me and you use it to that. buy another house. You can in some cases. I don't know the exact details, but some mortgages can be ported in some ways. So. In know. other countries, that's definitely true, like in Canada. But I haven't really heard of that being a thing here yeah, as much. Canada. All right. Plus, so. you move to Canada. Yeah. Well, you can't well, take your mortgage with you. So. <laughs> take your mortgage with you. All right. Thanks again. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Let's go across the pond and take a look at what's happening in the economies of our good friends in Europe and the UK. Dr. Vanya Stavrakeva joins us. She's a professor of economics at the London Business School. Uh, Professor, it seems like the U.S. economy is doing pretty well to the point where this Fed doesn't need to really do anything to kind of maybe, you know, we've got inflation kind of running okay. We've got the economy kind of running okay. Just give us the 30,000-foot view of Europe in, in general, and then we'll, we'll dig down a little deeper. So thank you very much for having me. Always a pleasure to be here. So indeed, there is quite a bit of divergence between the U.S. and Europe and definitely U.K. as well. Um, which is due to structural reasons. So the German economy, for example, if you take the biggest country in the Eurozone is significantly different from the US economy. We would expect that inflation will be high in Germany and would expect the inflation problem be worse in Germany and to see stagnation or even um, decreasing growth, which is what the recent numbers show based on a few observations. So first the Eurozone um, and Germany in general, in general are just much more open relative to the US. So if you take one measure of openness, which is exports relative to GDP, 
And just take China, which of course, as we know, has um, decreased its demand for imports due to the slow in growth in China. So the connection between Germany and China is 2.5% of the German GDP. So Germany exports 2.5% of its GDP to China. So an external shock from China is going to impact the German economy, for example, a lot. The difference is with the US, the number is 0.6%. So of course, it's not just China. Actually, over the last year, the euro has appreciated against the dollar by more than 10%, close to 12%. Vandy, can I just jump in here and ask about uh, quickly about China? Uh, um, I keep hearing that the slump in China is affecting other economies badly, and um, everyone's kind of writing off the economy there. But aren't they pulling out some real stimulus now? Isn't it possible that the Chinese economy um, does start to pick up? Well, they've been kind of trying to do it for a while. I don't think they're proposing anything new. I, I believe that China is on a downward trend. We're talking about a trend here rather than a temporary, essentially one blip deviation from growth. Uh, China cannot grow the way it used to for a number of reasons, which are quite long to discuss. Um, so I, I do believe that actually the trend will persist in China. Okay, sure. I just wanted to get that straight. I, yes, I, yes, I believe you. I just have been a little bit confused because we report on every stimulus move like it's a huge deal. You know, like, oh, yeah, man, they're cutting the triple I, R uh, reserve ratio and uh, they're, they're, they're funding, you know, little kids and old parents. And so, but, yeah. but, I, but I, I, think, I hear you. I think it's important actually to zoom out and look at not just the recent news, but a compilation of news and trends. I mean, that's kind of what, what we do usually in, in econ, not just focus on a single news. Speaking of trends, going back to the euro, an appreciation of the euro of 12% is massive. Right? This is going to impact the eurozone economy in Germany the most. Now, what else is different for Germany? So there are other major differences between Germany and the US coming from the fact that Germany is primarily dominated by manufacturing. Uh, so manufacturing is still much more important uh, in Germany than the US. So then the shocks associated with high oil and, price, uh, oil and gas prices impacting the marginal cost of production for the, margin, uh, for the manufacturing sector is another big problem, right? So those costs had to be passed forward to the final um, consumer for the manufacturing sector. So the prices of manufacturing goods had to in increase more, so high inflation in Germany. Similarly, the labor tightness. So Germany has demographic problems. They have aging population much more than the US. So you have seen the articles that the manufacturing sector is struggling to hire employees. Wage inflation is going to be higher. So these are structural differences that are here to stay. They're not going to disappear overnight um, that are putting the US and Germany in a, in a very different position. Now, this creates a lot of challenges for ECB, uh, of course, because Germany is one of many countries in the Eurozone and the German economy is also different from Southern Europe and from other countries. So then the question is, what is ECB going to do? Uh, I do believe that in general, um, ECB tends to put a higher weight on the German economy, higher weight. That's what we saw during the global financial crisis, for example. Probably it will be the same in this case. Having said that, given that the news are high inflation above um, target and actually significantly above target, so more than 5% core inflation is a very uncomfortable situation for ECB. Um, even if the German economy slow down, even if there is a recession, I do not see how they're not going to keep increasing interest rates. We're not talking about inflation getting to 3, 3.5% and then having the theory that maybe they're targeting a bit higher inflation. We're talking about still 5% core inflation. All right, how about the, uh, the United Kingdom? What, what are we seeing in terms of the economy there and what do we expect the Bank of England to do in response? So for the UK, it seems that uh, there's some evidence that the high interest rates are starting to bite. 
Having said that, the UK has the worst numbers in terms of inflation, in terms of um, private sector wage growth. I don't see them pausing for the time being. I mean, they cannot pause at this inflation rate. Um, however, I do expect a recession coming the soonest probably in the UK relative to either either Eurozone and UK. Um, it's, it's, it's unclear which one is going to come first, but definitely we will have a recession in the UK because they will have to keep hiking. And even at current uh, interest rates, it's going to bite, already starting to bite. What do you think about the... Uh, the the release of strategic the strategic petroleum reserve last year didn't really affect uh, the price of oil so much. Now we're heading back up there, um, even as these problems, you know, uh, of economic slowdowns hit whole continents like Europe. Um, how is the how does the oil price work into your forecasts for economic growth or contraction? Contributing to slow slowdown, so we saw that uh, gas prices are starting to increase again. So let's see what happens with the winter. If we have a mild winter, it might not be as bad. If global demand slows down, this might offset efforts by oil producing economies to decrease the supply, which of course OPEC has been trying to do that. So it is a function of both supply and demand. So it is a function also for the oil and gas producers do, um, in addition to what happens to demand. Um, I don't expect them to reach the levels, of course, of last winter, unless there is another massive shock. Um, but uh, definitely are going to put a downward pressure on the growth um, in the Eurozone and in the UK as we enter the winter months, where we expect prices to increase a bit at least. How about in Southern Europe? I'm thinking Italy, Spain, those are areas that tend, those are economies that tend to be more fragile. And at least here in the US, we, we hear more about that from a, from a, a weakness perspective. How are they faring in, in this environment? Well, Italy is a special case. I wouldn't put it together necessarily with Spain these days. Um, besides Italy, other Southern European economies actually having better numbers than Germany. They have mm, lower yeah. inflation and better growth. Um, so overall, actually, they're doing better. But if the ECB keeps hiking, of course, this is going to have an impact on those economies as well. Um, um, yeah, the numbers for Italy do not look great. So definitely Italy for a number of reasons is an outlier at the moment. So that's where there'll be also political conflict because um, further hikes are going to potentially upset politicians in certain Southern European countries if they feel they don't need these hikes. Um, so this has always been the problem with ECB, right? We have a single central bank, many business cycles, no common fiscal policy. Um, so usually the weight is on Germany. Yeah, that's tough. If, I mean, if your biggest economy is your weakest or one of your weakest links, that's tough. Well, I mean, let's define weakest link. Surely the uh, Spain, Portugal, Italy, Greece, you know, those are going to be weaker economies over the longer term. Don't you think, doctor? Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, there is the yeah. trends and there are business cycle fluctuations. So when we talk about monetary policy, of course, the, of course, the focus is on business cycle fluctuations. And, and that's where currently the divergence is such that Southern Europe is doing better than Germany in steady state, of course, um, the fundamentals, you can say, are better for, you know, countries like Germany than Greece or, or um, Italy, for sure. Um, so there right. is you notice I didn't use uh, the term pigs. Why would you? Yes, use? I do not like this term. It's a very oh, Portugal, Italy, Greece. Yes. Oh, yeah. That's I mean, not it's good. actually. I think Portugal, Italy, Ireland, Greece. Easy, and Spain. easy on the yeah. Ireland. Thing. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> All right, doctor. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Vanya Stav 
Stavrakeva, professor of economics at the London Business School. I appreciate getting the view of what's happening in Europe. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Let's talk. REITs, Real Estate Investment Trust. Steve Brown, he can do that for us. Steve Brown is a Senior Portfolio Manager Global Real Estate at American Century Investments. Uh, he joins us live here in our Bloomberg Interactive uh, Broker Studio. Steve, what happens to the REIT market when the Fed has 11 rate increases, there's a banking crisis? That can't be a good backdrop for REITs. Sure. Uh, thank you for having me on. Yeah, REITs have been under pressure this year and part of last year because of the the Fed rate hiking cycle. And as you mentioned, it's going on for over 12 months, and they've raised short-term rates you know, basically from 0% to 5%, so very materially higher rates. And it's impacted basically cap rates and borrowing costs for real estate. So REITs in general have been under pressure for the last, we'll call it 18 months or so. And we're really looking to a an environment where the Fed is done raising rates, and that would be a much more constructive environment to own publicly traded real estate. So, um you think rates are just going to stay here or we're going to get a new dot plot um, this month? Do you think they're going to take out some of the cuts? Right. I think uh, our, our basic thinking is, is the Fed is, is either done or just about done. They could be done because they haven't raised rates since July. And as we move into 24, then the next conversation will be when do the cuts start. Uh, we think that if when the Fed's done, that's a much more constructive environment for real estate values and public real estate. And we think that, you know, we don't necessarily need the Fed to start cutting rates, but just having no more rate increases and some stabilization in the bond market, that'll be a much more pricing efficient market for real estate. So we're optimistic that the Fed is, is either done or just about done raising rates. And whether they start cutting in, in June of next year or, or September of next year, it really is just a more constructive environment when the Fed is done raising rates. All right. So... I know that there are lots of different sectors within the REIT space, you know, data centers versus, you know, housing and things like that. Offices, what are the, offices versus student housing. Exactly. Sure. What are the ones that you guys are going to be positioned in for if we are, in fact, heading into a, a time when rates are no longer increasing? Where are you guys kind of placing your bets? Sure. It's a great question. And, um, you know, REITs are up about 2% or so this year, so not much going on. But certain sectors like uh, data center REITs, industrial have done well this year because of they have they have pricing power and other property sectors have really you know performed poorly you mentioned office that's certainly one of the weaker performing sectors as well as uh, net lease and to a certain extent uh, retail i think we think that if, if when the fed's done you know that the asset class in general should perform better because of uh, more effective debt financing for real estate values and will the more bombed out sectors perform well i think retail is probably going to continue to will, will perform better because of lower rates and they have uh, lower valuations, so they'll benefit from that. But some of the other sectors that are haven't performed well this year, such as towers, uh, tower REITs are I love towers. Are a big component of the index. They haven't done well for a couple of reasons. One is the uh, uh, the growth characteristics have been modest, and secondly, because they have uh, sort of very strong pricing uh, power characteristics, they had high multiples, but high multiples and high rates don't go well together. So if the rates start to roll over, tower reach should perform well over the next 12 months. Also. Paul Paul loves towers because I'm going to guess he took somebody's towers. American Tower, there Crown you go. Castle, Public. 
Yeah. We made the fees we made off of those things. Gold mines, yeah. gold mines. So we rolled the whole industry for the up. bankers. Oh yeah, we rolled. But the whole also industry good up. for those for the sellers, for the, right? I yeah, mean, I remember yeah. when Deutsche Telekom oh, yeah. took all their ta- towers, they, they the, sold them and leased them back. They thought that those assets were worthless, and yeah. they were worth seven, eight, nine times cash flow yeah. we got them for. Right. So anyway, um, so we made money on the tower business back in the day. Um, so here in New York City, you're a REIT guy, you're a real estate guy. When I see a true, a high quality. Third Avenue, 48th Street Tower. When that gets sold in the next year or two, is it going to be 10% below where it was, 20%, 50% more than that? Where, how bad do you think the office market is in a market like New York? Because we haven't seen stuff really trade, so we don't know what the discount really is. Right. It, it's bad in the sense that we've seen trades, whether they're in New York, San Francisco, other major cities. Yep. What we've seen is... Um, some funds, some uh, private equity funds, give back the office properties to the lenders, and then the so the 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 asset is is worth less than the loan. So we've seen Oof. property declines over the last twelve months in the office sector of anywhere from twenty to forty five percent of transactions that have happened. So that's what we're seeing, and I would we would believe that you know office values are down anywhere from twenty, thirty, forty percent. So if a property that you just mentioned hasn't traded in say three or four years, you could probably uh, see a pricing that's you know 30 or 40 percent lower than what last mm. traded at because of higher cap rates for office and concerns about uh, NOI of the office buildings because of uh, less tenant demand and, and you know, the uh, the continuation of work from home. What what's the best way? I mean, REITs you can go and buy them individually. There are also ETFs of REITs. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a number of ways to get at the product. Does the wrapper matter, or what, what, what's your view on that? Right. I'd, I'd say, you know, certainly from, from where we sit, we run a active, actively managed long-only strategy. And I think that the, uh, the diversity helps total returns, certainly for us and our, our, our clients. I think that the, uh, you know, there were, even though I mentioned that REITs were up only 2 or 3% this year, there are a number of property sectors that have done quite well, whether it's data centers up 20 25%, uh, industrial up 10 or 12%. Multifamily up seven percent, so there's been some real winners. So active management does matter, and I think as we move into 2024, and as we sort of get into the uh, get past the Fed rate hiking cycle, and, and the environment changes somewhat, I think there'll be some continued uh, strong differential in performance of the various property sectors as are there, we move into 24. Are there? I mean, the big losers, Steve. I'm guessing like office space here along Third Avenue, right? Yeah. Have they lost enough so that they become uh, interesting in terms of you know the multiples. Sure, uh, in the public sector, I mean the office REITs at one point this year were down forty percent. So publicly traded real estate reflected higher interest rates, reflected concerns about an economic slowdown, et cetera, et cetera. So they they really had real time pricing, and they would be the first to recover of a, in terms of re, a recovery in the economy or a, a slowdown in the raise of rates. The, in the private market, the pricing has not adjusted so quickly. So it's clear today, and that's why you know, REITs are trading at a 20% discount to net asset value. They're okay. trading at a big discount to property prices, and they reflect both the higher yeah. rates and the, and the impact of uh, just a modest slowdown in demand for certain property sectors like office, which you mentioned. All right, interesting stuff. Uh, real estate, real estate investment trust. Steve Brown is our go-to guy, senior portfolio manager, global real estate for American Century Investors. We didn't get to talk about my favorite REIT, which is Lamar Advertising, billboards also did that company public. 
You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. I want to talk about one of the stories crossing the tape. We work to renegotiate nearly all leases, exit unfit sites. So we work is still a thing. Uh, and we talk real estate. We talked to Jeff Langbaum. He covers all the REITs and all the real estate stuff for Bloomberg Intelligence. He joins us. Uh, via Zoom from uh, the Princeton, New Jersey campus of Bloomberg. Uh, hey Jeff, let's start with you. Where Where is WeWork these days in the marketplace? What's happening with their portfolio of properties? What's the latest? <clears throat> so I like the way you put it, Paul. WeWork is still a thing. Still um, a thing. Although, although, I mean, you know, they're, it, it seems like they're hanging on, um, you know, by a thread at this point. Um, the news out today that they're planning to renegotiate all their leases I, I mean, you know, a renegotiation or a negotiation by definition requires two parties. Uh, it, it's going to be a wide range of outcomes uh, in terms of what their landlords want to do and are willing to do. Um, obviously, you've got a market where office demand is light. And so if you've got a tenant that wants to stay in your building, maybe you'd be willing to give them a break. But at the same time, if they're saying they want to stay in their best properties, um, maybe those are properties where you're not uh, eager to give them a break because those may be properties that you could fill with a tenant on perhaps better financial footing. So it's going to be um, a, a, a long workout, just like the commercial real estate industry broadly is in the middle of right now. Um, and it will be kind of interesting to see how it plays out. So in terms of WeWork clients, how many of them have said, you know what, this is, um, this is getting a little sketchy for us. We're going to go over and get some office space with Regis or another competitor. Well, their occupancy rate has fallen. Um, and so clearly the, the demand for their space is not nearly as strong as it was. And, and some component of that is probably tenants moving to someplace a little bit, uh, you know, stronger in a stronger position. Some may be getting permanent office space. Some may be just sitting and waiting. Uh, but some is just you know because the the market is is soft and there's not nearly as much office demand um and you know obviously that's the the underlying problem for them is they've got these you know long-term fixed lease payments and the revenue's not coming in uh at the level that they expected it to be so that's what's triggering the the need for them to scale back but without a bankruptcy you know they don't have the ability to just walk away from leases and and clearly seems like they're trying to avoid going that route Hey, Jeff, I, I, you're the expert on this stuff. When we see an office trade, office building trade on, let's say, on Third Avenue in Midtown Manhattan, what kind of haircut is it going to trade at? 50% from where it was before? Something less than that? Something more than that? Uh, this is going to be ugly. Well, it, it, it really depends on what the where it was before uh, is how that's measured, right? I mean, if, if you're talking about where values, paper values were at their peaks, you know, you might see pretty significant uh, haircuts in the, in, the, in the range that you're talking about. Um, you know, if you're talking about trades relative to the last time a building traded, which may be, you know, a decade or more ago, might not be as bad. The, the issue really is going to be where are these, where are values now relative to where, um, you know, debt can be underwritten? Uh, because that's what's going to trigger the need for properties to trade is a financing situation. Um, and, you know, we really just haven't seen enough data points yep. yet to know because 
while there's clearly distress in the market, it hasn't yet gotten to the point where distressed trades, enough distressed trades are happening to really know what prices are going to look like. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to see kind of where those values are in some of these big cities, New York, San Francisco. All right, Jeff, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate you hopping on in short notice. Jeff Langbaum, he covers all the REITs for a Bloomberg Intelligence. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q and B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. All right, let's talk global energy here. We got uh, Brent crude. I'll just quote Brent crude since we hit $90 a barrel today. That got people's attention. Currently at eighty nine dollars and sixty. Do you use CL one for that? Is it CL one? CO one is Brent C-O-1. crude. CL one is W-T-I. Nymex. Yeah, I usually quote Nymex because I like my the guy. You know, the wild catters down in Texas. CL one commodity. All right, let's you talk global commodity. What I'm looking to see because last year in March, the Biden administration started issuing barrels from the Strategic FDR. Petroleum Reserve, and so what I'm looking to see is. Are we getting back to those levels? Because at the pump, um, you know, we're there pretty much. And if the Biden administration thought it was too high, the price, so they needed to release those reserves for the good of the American people at that time, they must think the same thing again now, right? I don't know. Let's check in with a couple of experts. People do this stuff for a living. Mike McGlone and Fernando Valle, uh, they cover the energy space force uh, for Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, Miami Mike is zooming in from uh, Miami, and Fernando's here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Hey, Mike, I'll start with you. Uh, big move higher here in oil. It's catching a lot of folks by surprise. We had some of the airlines today call out higher fuel costs here. What do you make of it? It's a bounce that will fail. Um, and I did this, said the same thing last year when crude oil got above 100. My call was it's going to get to 40, and the low this year is 63. Okay, didn't get all the way there, but to me it's just a matter of time. That's what crude oil always does it fluctuates it's the most autocorrelated asset commodity there is when it jumps up it squashes that uh, demand increases the supply when it pumps it drops down it's the opposite the key thing is what's changed that's what does technically what's changed is this significant excess of supply out of the u.s so i'm just looking at my data lately the the net um Exports from U.S. and Canada, liquid fuels this year is going to reach 5 million barrels a day. Just to put that in context, that's enough. That's liquid fuels. That includes ethanol and everything. That's enough to fill up the, the SPR, what we took out of it, in about 70 days. So this is a problem for the rest of the world, not for the U.S., particularly what OPEC's doing. I'm sure Fernando can comment on that. But I look at what you see on the screen now is what I expect crude oil to do is it's got a major problem with the world tilting towards recession. Our model, the economics model, is 100% for the U.S., declining out of China, PMIs and everything declining in Europe, and and central banks still tightening. That's the macro and the micro is it usually fluctuates. And right now, I think it's really very much near the upper end of its range. I mean, our model, Bloomberg Economics model, uh, has a 100% chance for a recession, but it's fair to say the consensus uh, on the street is for a soft landing. I mean, Goldman Sachs says 15% chance 
have a recession. <laughs> I guess his model's slightly different than ours, I guess. So, Fernando, what do you know from the, so from the fundamental perspective? What are you seeing out there? It looks like OPEC, if they want higher prices, they're, they're getting it. They're getting some of it. Um, but, you know, I think when you look at just, again, Asia, as Mike was mentioning, then Germany's number is 11% down month over month today. Uh, on the industrial orders. Who's their biggest trading partner? China. I think the demand side, as Mike was saying, is really the biggest concern. And if we do have a recession, it's you can't keep $90 a, a, a barrel. And I think what uh, there's a dis discrepancy here on, on our views versus the street that when uh, uh, Saudi and Russia agree to cut uh, to extend their cuts to the end of the year, they're basically saying demand looks soft to us, not we're going to keep pushing prices higher. They're saying we don't have a market in Asia. And so that's not a great news for anyone who's bullish oil. We just extended that because we're not finding that supply uh, balance yet. And as Mike was saying, we continue to grow. I think that growth is going to moderate. Uh, we're going to miss expectations on U.S. shale just because uh, the pace of drilling is lower. The cost of financing is lower. Remember, shale is an ever going uh, treadmill. You're always reinvesting because you have 90% declines in the first year. So the, the shale producers will feel higher interest rates right away, higher inflation right away, because they're constantly drilling and drilling again to, to maintain their production. Well, it's hard enough to get them out there to drill, to put new holes in the ground, right? Because not only are interest rates rising, but they're afraid of regulation, um, certainly under this administration. What do you think about the SPR uh, release and its effects, Mike? I mean, I'm looking at the chart for NYMEX crude. We didn't go to 100 until March 1st of last year. We stayed there until... July 20th, um, and the crude releases, the SPR releases began at the end of March. Did they have a significant effect? Well, I, I, I still think President Biden's going to go down in history as one of the best crude oil traders ever. He actually did the right thing, what you're supposed to do in backwardation. You sell the liquid and you buy the futures contracts. Obviously, they haven't bought them back yet, but we just don't need it anymore. We have an excess supply of crude oil. We shut off our exports, we're going to have way too much of it. So I think it's just a matter of time it gets refilled, but we don't have to do it anymore. And there's one thing I wanted to tee you off on, Matt, is when you go to Europe in 12 years from now, you will not be able to purchase an internal combustion vehicle. This is where we're going. That's he's trying to he's, he's trying, trying to get, get my a, goat get a rise out of <laughs> you. Yeah. And what I'm doing right now is I, I have this strategic uh, internal combustion engine reserve at my house. I'm just stockpiling <laughs> gas uh, vehicles. I'll take the other side and then I'll say if Europe uh, does that, it'll be, you'll be able to buy Europe for that at that point for the price of an internal combustion engine car. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Fernando, what are your companies telling you about where they think uh, oil is going? I mean, they have not cut investments at all, so they are seeing the undersupply long term. But in the short term, they just they just want to, as uh, Chevron says, win in any environment. Um, I think they they are, have continued buybacks, and that is the biggest difference in big oil today versus big oil in 2019 is they cleaned up their balance sheets so they can afford to continue that that share repurchase program even at much lower oil prices. And I think if you ask Mike Worth of Chevron or Darren Woods of Exxon, uh, they would say, yeah, give, me a, give, us, give us a dip on our stock price because we would love to improve our returns on capital by repurchasing some of our shares rather than going out and buying more, uh, more small ENPs. I don't know. I mean, can I go down to Texas and start drilling? I mean, I think I can make money at $90 a barrel. You would think, but you can't find the, 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 the tubular goods. You can't find the labor. 
and you're sure not going to get permits to drill a lot of those wells. Ah, that's no fun. All right, Mike, from the commodity space, just right away here, what's your number one call? Gold. The average price of gold this year at 1933 is the highest ever. You can't say that about virtually any other commodity or asset so far expected to continue. And the deepest pockets on the planet are buying gold. That's central banks. And, uh, Fernando, just real quick, what are your clients? What's, like, the, the most in vogue trade you hear from your clients? Well, people are going for the soft landing uh, movement, and we think that's not quite going to play out well for them. So they're still buying some of the petrochemical names that are exposed to housing, some of the uh, ENPs, the more levered ENPs that are now getting a rise out of the, the higher oil prices. And we think safety, uh, especially when you're getting a huge payout from Exxon and Chevron, is, uh, is a more attractive proposition. All right, good stuff, fellas. Appreciate it. Fernando Valle, uh, Mike McGlone, they cover the energy space for Bloomberg Intelligence. Mike, more from a, a commodities perspective, he covers all commodities for BI. And Fernando, uh, from the fundamentals, the equity side for a lot of the big oil-producing companies. It's great to get both of their views when we're talking about the global uh, energy space. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Let's talk about that right now because Cummins, famous for its diesel engines, sure. is going to build a $3 billion battery plant with help from the Chinese. And there's oh, a lot boy. of skepticism at these kind of partnerships, uh, 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 concerning these kinds of partnerships, including skepticism that Ford faced um, building a battery uh, plant in Detroit recently. Let's bring in Elizabeth Behrman. Uh, she wrote the Cummins uh, story for us. She's out of Munich right now. Are you are you in the office? You're not at the at the show, right? Did you go to the show? Uh, I was... I was at the Munich car show from uh, Monday through to uh, yesterday and already having lots of fun with it over the weekend. It's been a great experience. All right. So um, wh what do we know about this uh, plant that Indiana-based um, engine manufacturer Cummins is going gonna, is gonna to build with China's EVE energy company? Yeah, such an interesting development. And um, so, uh, as you were just saying in your intro, Cummins is a diesel engine uh, maker, and they're having to get ready for uh, what's up next. Um, they're, they're picking Daimler Truck as uh, one of the partners in that venture, the world's biggest commercial vehicle maker, um, and then also Packer. And I think that's absolutely the right way to go, um, choosing partners, strong partners, to share the load and gain scale to drive down the costs of switching over to batteries. It surprised me, given all the rhetoric we see out there on the geopolitical stage, why is China's EVE Energy Company a part of this transaction? Well, because they have the technology. I mean, EVE okay. is not exactly a company that's coming out of nowhere. They, they are a partner with BMW. And obviously, there are these geopolitical tensions with the US um, and China. It hasn't stopped other companies from teaming up with them. You were just mentioning Ford. Um, and, you know, there's absolutely no way around the fact that out of the top 10 global battery suppliers, seven of them are Chinese. So um, whether you like it or not, um, there's, there's kind of nowhere around what with them. Does everybody have enough uh, battery capacity, um, Elizabeth, or are they building these factories quickly to try and get the capacity they think they're going to need five years, ten years out? 
You know, it's really interesting when you're comparing where the truck makers are and where the car makers are. The car makers are a lot further down the line, as we know. And um, just coming into this conversation, I was just having a look around, you know, is this the first of this kind in the US, you know, supplying batteries for trucks? I think it is. Um, we've got one announcement from Volvo over here in Europe. So they're at this, at this much earlier stage of, um, of moving um, into this shift. Um, and hopefully they can learn from some of the mistakes that the car makers have been making, which is to partner up much earlier than they did in order to save costs. Because unlike with cars, obviously, truck makers need to make a profit from their vehicles. So uh, from the get-go, uh, commercial vehicle makers, they need to offer products where logistics companies stand to, stand, to, stand to make a profit. I wonder, though, about the actual materials. So um, this, this factory is going to focus on lithium iron phosphate batteries initially. Um, I've heard, you know, Mark Royce from GM tells me the chemistry is going to change every year, right? So we don't know what it's going to look like in terms of the chemicals needed in 10 years or 20 years. But lithium is already in short supply, right? Are they scrambling to get contracts for the mines? Um, I'm not really sure in terms of that, where they stand on that engagement. I mean, the, the LFP batteries you mentioned, I think they're a smart initial move because they're cheaper than um, comparable um, other chem chemistries, um, which will help them from the get-go. In the statements from the companies, they were also saying that this is the initial chemistry that they're going to be working with. So the, the way that indicates that the way they're going to set this up is that they can switch over to other chemistry and chemistries as they become available. Um, and just on your point about availability of resources to make these batteries. I mean, it's a huge question mark. And um, arguably, there will be bottlenecks along the way. These bottlenecks we've seen historically have been able to be resolved, you know, on not necessarily battery raw materials, but usually when there is a bottleneck that we, you know, humans find a way around them. Um, in terms of the supply, um, again, that was also a big topic at the Munich car show just now. The Chinese have been building their grip on the supply chain like no other nation. And while there is a lot of lithium coming out of the US or Australia as well, for example, 80% of lithium refining capacity is currently located in China. So it comes back to the geopolitics that we were talking about earlier on. There's currently no way around working with Chinese partners if you want to make battery vehicles. Elizabeth, there's also some news coming out of Germany uh, on the China front. A again, Mercedes CEO kind of changes his tune on China as, you know, maybe that's not going to be such a great growth market in the next 10 years as maybe they thought as recently as a couple of years ago. What's the background there? Yeah, he's really changed his tune, hasn't he? We were looking back over his comments from two years ago. And back then he was just saying how the market was uh, still looking awesome basically and uh, people not being able to get enough from um, from their luxury vehicles. If the Chinese market really slows, that's a really big problem for the German car makers. Because even if VW has been losing market share there, for all, all of the three German car makers, China remains the biggest market. So if people there are no longer or in far fewer numbers buying their cars, that's going to be a big problem. Um, there are, of course, other markets that they can move to. Um, we've had some speculation just talking from to people at the show that uh, for some of the products from the Mercedes, like 
I know you love that car, the G-Wagon, that they could focus more on, on Middle Eastern customers. But obviously, there are far fewer Middle Eastern customers than there are Chinese customers. Um, again, though, the US could be another market where they could uh, refocus uh, their marketing efforts or mm. the styling of their cars to see if they can unearth a few more people um, to buy their cars. I have always thought, so I love the G-Wagon. I've been a fan since I was nine. I bought one in uh, 2020, which made my pandemic awesome. <laughs> um, and I've always thought, you know, they, they only make like a few thousand at one factory in Graz. Mercedes doesn't even build them themselves. They outsource it to Magna Steyr, right? That's and they right. can't make more. Right. So there's a long waiting list and they're incredibly expensive. I've always thought Mercedes should try and make like a Volkswagen bug version of the G-Wagon that everyone can buy and everyone would buy. But they don't want to go, I guess, down market, right, Elizabeth? Well, they were talking about a baby G-Wagon, weren't they, at the show, which satellite TikTok. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think they, I think even Mercedes is surprised just how many G-Wagons they can shift. Um, so uh, if they're adding more derivatives, which does fit the narrative that we're getting from Mercedes, that they want to focus on their top performing cars, the top end vehicles within their portfolio, uh, you know, who knows where, where you know, they, they could go to make, to make the baby G-Wagon. I, I wonder what well. you think about the new uh, BMW concept. I thought it was horrib horribly ugly. And no, don't pull any punches. I'm a huge <laughs> fan of the cars, uh, the car maker's history, but I don't know what they're doing with their future vehicles. Like the XM confuses me completely. What do you think about BMW? Well, I think you know car styling is so subjective, and you can you can talk to no end about it. Um, I think you you really have to take off your sort of Western glasses, or even sometimes German glasses. <laughs> in, in my case, what appeals to me uh, doesn't appeal to Chinese customers, and that's where they want to sell these cars. Um, and, you know, whether you like the styling or not, I don't think it really matters. Um, they were going for some a bit of a retro design, um, you know, which sort of harks back to their heyday um, of, of making these really stylish cars. So whether that's a bad idea or not, I'm not really sure. I didn't think the car looked terrible. What concerned me a bit more was that this vehicle, alongside the Mercedes CLA prototype right. that they were showing, both of these cars are come on the new generation platform for the EVs. It's not going to be on sale until right. the first half of 2025 or thereabouts. Yeah, that's a little, yeah, that's, that's a little bit coming out too late. late. Competition. All right, yeah. Elizabeth, thank you so much. Elizabeth Behrman, team leader, Bloomberg News. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com.